If you're going to follow along in your Bible uh, this morning, I'm going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'll uh, keep stalling until I get there because 1 Samuel is hard to find, even for the guy on stage. Um, we're in uh, the book of, uh, or not the book of David, we're in this series on, on David. And I just want to say something about what we're going to talk about today because it kind of resonates with me. It turns out uh, David had a little bit of what we might call like an anger problem. Uh, and and it, he doesn't, he, sometimes he has it under control. If you were here last week, you, uh, you saw that he, he was in a very scary moment and his anger could have got the better of him, but he, he chose a better path. Uh, but today it, it really could go one of two different ways. And anger is something that is in David from, from now until the rest of ever. It, it affects the way that he parents. It affects so much more. And I just want to say that if, if you are like that, um, if you have as well like a, a little bit of a temper, a little fiery uh, furnace that can kind of get set off every now and then, you may really resonate with what happens here with David. I, on the other hand, have never had an anger problem, and I don't know what's wrong with y'all. That's not true. Uh, I, I, I remember in high school, just that was my fuel. That, I, I tried out for football for the purpose of, I want to get mad and hit people, and I don't want to get in trouble for it, so I played football, and I got to hit people for fun. It was, it was a, a great therapeutic moment. Uh, I remember being angry quite a bit. In fact, just the other day, I, anger got the best of me. I'm trying to go to that new Starbucks in Groves, which is amazing, by the way. If you've not been there, uh, you should check it out. It's good to have a neighborhood Starbucks nearby. Uh, but they only have one entrance into the parking lot. And the, and the way that the drive through had kind of snaked on out, it had snaked out the drive through lane, snaked through the Starbucks parking lot, snaked onto the only entrance into the parking lot, onto the road, and back onto Twin City. It was all the way around. Traffic was backed up in all directions. And I've pulled up, and to be fair to the lady or two in front of me, um, I am pulling up like in the middle of the line that's already established, but I can't control that. I'm coming from this other way. And, and being, you know, the law follower that I am, I have the right of way. Like whatever happens next, it's my turn to go. You know what I'm saying? Just because of position. And uh, the car in front of me moves and I go to move forward and a car just cut me off and like my blood pressure just shot. I'm like, how dare they? But I didn't do anything. And so I come to a stop and I waited for them to clear. And then, and then that car goes. And then the next car that went in front of me cut me off again. And I was like, oh. And so anger got the best of me and I honked and I did one of these motions and immediately felt guilty. And so uh, as a way of public repentance, uh, if you're in this room, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I still love you and I hope that your coffee was free and delicious. I don't know, I don't know why I did that. Uh, some, sometimes, you know, anger is just, it, it just hits you. You know, uh, I was joking uh, this morning, just yesterday, I'm, I'm, it was like four four-year-olds on a baseball field trying to keep them engaged for four and a half hours. Uh, it, it's just like herding cats, and it's constantly in, in anger. It boils up in you, and it's got, it's got to do something. What do you do with anger? Because if we're not careful, am I right? If we're not careful, anger says, I've got a great idea. Let's do this thing, and it's always a bad idea, and it drives us in directions that later we uh, have words for it. The words are like regret and oops. And where it's like, golly, what was I thinking? Uh, or we try to like, you know, backfill some logic. On, well, of course I responded that way because of A, B, and C. When in reality, all we should be saying is, I'm so sorry, honey, please forgive me. I will wash the dishes next time. Um, anger, 
anger. We're going to talk about David and anger, but let's, let's make sure we know where we're at because this is written as some history. Uh, we'll put this timeline up just to give you an idea of uh, some of these things that have happened. These are approximate dates. Someone asked me like, okay, was it January or March? I don't know. I mean, it could have been 1054 BC for all I know, but really within some, some frame of, of uh, accuracy, this is pretty close to the dates that we have. Uh, some, some characters that we've met already is uh, Saul. Uh, Saul is the first king of, of Israel. And what we know about Saul is that uh, in some ways he's not a terrible guy, but he has some problems. Uh, very often he'll compromise his character uh, and he'll do things that aren't really what he's supposed to do. And so he'll compromise his character, but to fix them, he will, he will sort of kind of make up and compensate with religious looking things. Maybe you have friends like this that, that they'll do something and then they'll say, well, you know, God bless your little heart, you're an idiot, or something like that. They do something religious sounding uh, on the back end of it, and you're like, that's not really what we want. Uh, Saul had very clear instructions from God what to do, but he, he didn't do those things. He would do whatever he wanted, and then he compensated with religious-looking things, and his character suffered as a result of it. And on top of that, we know that Saul had some form of mental illness. It looks like maybe a form of schizophrenia or bipolar. I mean, they didn't have words like that in the Bible, so who knows, but he certainly had some ups and downs that made living with Saul very different and dangerous. And then our boy David, uh, we, we've met him. What we know about David so far is that he's not perfect, right? And, and I, I like that he's not perfect. I like that there's humanity there because I can see bits of myself in him. Uh, he was faithful uh, to, to God in the big moments of life. I mean, think Goliath, think Saul in the cave. He was faithful to God in those big moments, but he was also faithful to God in those boring moments in those small moments where he's just sitting in a field watching sheep for his dad day in and day out. He was faithful to God whenever he needed to play the guitar for Saul in that heated moment. But then he was also like saying good things about Saul in the private moments outside. He was faithful in the big and the small. He was faithful in the exciting and he was faithful in the boring. And, and while he's not a perfect man, uh, it is a lesson to be learned that you and I, we, we tend to want our faith only for those super tragic moments or our faith for those super exciting moments. But, but most of us in this room, God willing, is in a really boring moment of your life. You're not in like a moment where there's crisis on the horizon. May, maybe some of you, but for most of you, you're in that boring moment. What does God want you to do right now? To, to be faithful, and like David, David was. And so uh, to, to land the, the recap is that Saul, in all of his uh, mental illness and uh, fear, uh, he turns on David, and there's domestic violence in his life. Uh, he, he tries to kill David multiple times. David runs, and he gets away, and there's a moment that we saw last week where David had a chance to get revenge on him and chose not to, and he says, who am I to raise my hand against whom the Lord anointed? He chooses not to go violent when violence would have been a lot easier. And so going into today on uh, 1 Samuel 25, we're, we're right on the heels of that story. And it'd be easy for you and I to think, well, that's because David's a wimp, Jesse. He doesn't have a violent bone in his body. Uh, one, I would remind you that he did cut a man's head off with his own sword. Okay, so that, that's something. Uh, but two, we're going to read a story about David where... Um, I don't know, anger kind of gets the better of him. And, and so if you, if you have your Bible, open up uh, to 1 Samuel 25, uh, and we'll begin uh, right at the top. It says, now Samuel, you may remember, was the, uh, he was the prophet slash judge of the day. 
He was the one who anointed Saul. He was the one who anointed David. He was the one to whom David ran to whenever things get, went absolutely backwards with Saul. Like, who do I go to? I know this man of God. And so Samuel was, uh, he was a rescuer of, of, of David. It says, now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in the house at Ramah. What we know for sure is that Saul was at the funeral. Uh, I think David was at the funeral too, but I, I, can't, like, I can't read a, a sentence right here. This, this, this sentence, this line about Samuel dying, it doesn't even get a full verse. I mean, it goes on to the, the next thing. It says, he died, all Israel assembled and mourned. And it says, then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And we don't see a lot about how this affected him, but I have a suspicion uh, that uh, this man, Samuel, dying uh, really affected David. Uh, I think that a lot of the anger that we're going to see in David, a lot of the negative response we're going to see in David is in part due to the fact that he's grieving a man of God, a friend, a rescuer, dying. Um, with, with, I don't have the context to back this up. I will in just a moment, in about 10 minutes as I go through the story. But I just want to say as, as a, a way right here is, you know, when, when you're grieving, when, when you, have, you have a loss in your life and there's a death and it's like a heavy, heavy moment, uh, there's some pieces of your character that, that come out on the back end that, that aren't, aren't really you. They're not, they're, they're not good, and you're not maybe proud of them. Maybe decisions that you wish you don't want to make. Uh, I, it's going to affect David in a strong way, and it's going to affect you too because, because you're human, and it's going to be good for you to have uh, people of God around you. I'll explain that in a moment. So then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 3,000 goats. Everybody just say bling bling. Like that guy is rolling in the sheep. 3,000 sheep, 3,000 goats. I, I don't know like what that looks like for 401ks, but he's doing okay. It says he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. Let me pause real quick. Nabal is Hebrew. It means fool. So his parents loved him dearly. Uh, his name, his parents named him the foolish man or the fool or the foolish one or something like that. Uh, and the name of his wife, Abigail, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. What a way to be remembered in scripture for all of time. He was a Calebite. Let me, let me set this up real quick. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, you may, you may know this, you may not, uh, there's a story where Moses leads all of Israel uh, out of Egypt, right? And as they approach the promised land, they get, kind of get to the border of the promised land, and they're like, I don't know what's over there. Let's send some spies. And so you may remember that he sent, I think it was 10 spies, uh, and two of them were uh, Joshua and Caleb. And they go into the land, and they go into the wilderness of Paran, this same area, uh, and they look at it. And when they come back, they report, hey, there's giants in the land. We can't go there. You know, God doesn't want us in that land. We, we can't go there. This event, this exodus, happened 500 years before we are right now. And, uh, and, and, and they said, we can't do it. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, says, guys, you're, you're looking at this all wrong. Who cares how big the people are? We have God on our side. Are you kidding me? We're going to go into that land, and we're going to, to take it over. And Moses was like, yeah, we are. And so they go in, and, and God was with them, and they had it. And as a reward for that faithfulness, Joshua and Caleb get extra shares of the land. And what we're reading now is 500 years later, Nabal, the man named Fool, uh, he's a Calebite. He is a descendant of one of those spies in the land that was given to Caleb. His family's been in this land for 500 years. 
There's a reason why he's wealthy. He's been there a long time. You and I, we're Americans. We don't really have context uh, to think through like what it would look like for a family to own a stick of ground for 500 years. We, don't, we, don't have, we can't think that long back because our country's less than 400 years old. All right, imagine imagine uh, one of the pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower, lands on Plymouth Rock, and he's like, this is mine. And today, his great, 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 great grandson is still there like doing Plymouthy things. Like, that's, what, that's, the, that's the context of this right now. And so Nabal, while he may be foolish uh, by name, and while he may be harsh and just a badly tempered person, uh, he's extremely successful because of the faithfulness of God uh, and the trust of his great-grandparents uh, before. So he has all this land. He has all this. And this is where David's kind of hanging out right now. And it says uh, in verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Uh, David knows something about shearing sheep. I mean, he's a, he's a former shepherd, so he kind of understands the market. He understands what this looks like. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus shall you greet him. Peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand at your servants, uh, excuse me, to your servants and to your son, David. Here's what David wants. David says, look, I've been watching your people for like a month. We're out here in the wilderness. Uh, I'm taking care. You didn't ask me to. I'm just taking care of your people. The, the entire time your people have been here, they've been safe from you know, uh, uh, wolves. They've been safe from bears. They've been safe from uh, lions. There's nothing that's attacking them because my, my men, we're, we're taking care of them. And it happens to be one of the feast days. Uh, and we would like to just come and have it. You're going to have a feast. We know you're, you're rich. You're going to have a feast. We would like to show up on feast day and just enjoy a meal together. It seems like a reasonable request, right? Uh, has, has David done anything wrong yet? Just out of curiosity, yes or no? Just make a request? No, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, does Nabal owe him anything at this point? That's kind of a, a, a trickier question. Uh, Nabal, you know, he didn't agree. He didn't say, hey, David, I want you to watch my people and I will return payment to you. Nabal and David haven't met yet. So in that sense, he doesn't owe him anything, but it would be wise, I think, of, of Nabal to do something. It, Here's why I want to pause and just ask, like, who's in wrong yet? So far, nobody's done anything wrong. But, but you and I, when, when we go kind of through the world, sometimes, sometimes we're just nice to people uh, because, because they need it. They need a little rescuing. They have a flat tire. And uh, you go and you help this person change the flat tire. And then later they shoot you the finger and drive away. And you're just like, what was that? Why, why, why did you do that to me? Um, a lot of times we put ourselves in positions where we go out of our way to serve someone, like David goes out of his way to serve someone. Uh, and, then, and then we get unkindness in return. We get bitterness in return. And David's response will be very much like, like our response in some ways. Let's see how it goes. Verse 9, when David's young men came, and so they, they had the message, they said uh, all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. I wonder, how long, I wonder how long they waited. Hey, Nabal, we've come. We've been taking care of your people. David has this request. What do you think? So hey, let me think about it. And then they wait. I bet it was for a long, uh, absurdly long amount of time. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, 
Every man, strap on your sword. It's go time. Oh my gosh, it's it's about to get, it's about to go crazy. Uh, so Nabal's Nabal's response is uh, after he thinks about it for a while is, I don't know you, I don't owe you anything. You know what? We live in a time where people are just like they're just leaving their masters, and they're just we're living in a time where people just take take take. You know what? I don't think I don't think I owe you anything. Get out of here. You're not you're not worth my time. So the the young men they run back like, hey David, let me tell you what he said. And David's response isn't, well maybe maybe he's right. David's response isn't, uh, you know, okay, guys, well, let's just pack up and move on somewhere else and help somebody else. David's response is, everybody grab your guns, grab your swords, uh, put on your armor, let's, let's get after it. Strap on your swords, men. And every man of them strapped on a sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Don't, don't miss what's, what's about to happen right now. Uh, David has, he spared the life of Saul, showed amazing restraint. But then he goes to Samuel's funeral, has a moment of grief, and he goes and he does what looks to be a good thing, and instead of getting good in return, uh, he gets told, like, I don't care about you, get, get out of here. And then he's going he's gonna, to strap on our swords, guys. I'm going to take care of this. You know what, that guy? He's got a problem coming because I got me and 400 people behind me. You know, the lines like you and what army? David's like me and this army, my friend. I've got all of these people. Dave, uh, excuse me, Nabal the fool, uh, he just has a bunch of uh, like goat shearers. Like, what are you going to do? Give David a haircut when he shows up? Like, you can't do anything to 400 men who are coming. They, they, David has a group of men who are ready to kill the king of Israel before, and he stopped them. And he's now saying, okay, I'm not holding you back. We're going to go. All this momentum is building up in David's story where he's about to go commit murder, and he's ready. He has it in him to do it. He's killed people before in battle, so it's not like he, he doesn't know how to do the thing, but this will be the first time that David just goes and like, murders a man, not in battle. His anger's got the best of him, and all the momentum says it's, it's going to happen. I wonder, uh, I wonder if there's times in our life, whether it's out of guilt or anger, out of fear, out of, out of amazing grief, deep, deep grief, out of deep disappointment. You went for the job and somebody else got it. And it, that, that beat, that next beat, the very next thing that happened starts a trajectory of momentum in a direction you really don't want it to go into. Like what stops what stops that momentum? Usually, it's completing the task. What's going to stop David? Like, at what point can David, just like he's marching up the hill, up Carmel to go find this guy. And let's say it's a two-day walk. He's like on day two and a half, you know, day one and a half. And he's just, he's thought about it. He's like, no, you know what? 400 guys have changed my mind. I, I, don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Does he? I don't know. I don't think he has the power to stop the, the momentum that's about to happen. We would... We'd be wise to pay attention to how this unfolds because, because when momentum is going in the direction that we don't want it to, is going to, when we're starting to second guess the direction that we're going, we, we need to know how to take the exit ramp and where it comes from. Verse 14, but one of the young men uh, told Abigail, Nabal's wife, remember she was uh, smart and cunning and beautiful, unlike Nabal, 
Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were like a wall to us, both by day and by night, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against us, our master, and against all his house, for he is such a worthless man <laughs> that one cannot speak to him. I wonder if Nabal ever knew what was recorded about him in, in the Bible. He was such a worthless man. This, this, this is a young servant of Nabal talking to Nabal's wife. Abigail, your husband is a terribly worthless man. And I think, I think something bad's about to happen. All of Nabal's people uh, knew he wouldn't hear them. So they, they go to his wife, Abigail, you've, you've got to do something. So here's, here's Abigail's plan, verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep uh, already prepared and five seas of, of parched grain. She's got the granola, she's got wine, she's got, she's got sandwich material. Like this is, she's ready. She knows how to make people happy. And 100 clusters of raisins, just you know, go to town on those. 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. So she sends all the food ahead of her. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. At this point, uh, Abigail has no idea uh, like how mad David might be. She has no idea like how serious this is. But she knows that Nabal's done something wrong. And so she's now like she sent food along the way, and now and now she's on the path. And as she's on the path, she like comes over a hill or something, and she sees four hundred men plus David with swords on their hips, marching up her driveway, going towards her house. And she's like, I've got, I've got to do something. I've got, to, I've got to stop what's about to happen. Now David said to her, Surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. He's like, what I did was worthless to you, and I get no credit for it. I'm, I'm sick of it. So God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one mel of all who belong to him. Here's David's plan, and he's confessing it to Nabal's wife. David's plan is, I'm not just going to kill your husband, I'm going to kill everybody in your household. I'm, I'm done. I'm angry. He, he's, he's a man with a broken heart, and, and, and he is tired of getting pushed around. He's been living in the wilderness for like seven or eight years at this point. The guy's a little rough around the edges, uh, and he intends to do great harm, and he has fully fleshed out his thought. My thought, once I get to the end of this driveway, is there's going to be no men left standing when I'm done. Nobody. And what are they going to do? Give me a haircut. Like, you can't do anything. Um, you know, sometimes when, when we're angry, when, when, we have, when we have moments of uh, high frustration, high, high disappointment, we have two kinds of thoughts that we're going to have, uh, two kinds of negative thoughts. We have like the, the thought that's not fully fleshed out, like, I just wish somebody would do something. Uh, I'm tired of this. I'm, I'm sick of it. And then we have those thoughts that are really well fleshed out. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the air out of her tires, and then I'm going to like cut the brake lines. Like you, the, the, the accuracy of the second thought uh, is very scary. It's very scary. David has a weapon on his hip, and he's ready to slaughter, and he, he has like the numbers of people that he's going to go to town for. Uh, he, is, he is way beyond just like, oh, he's just, he's just talking a little bit. Oh, you know, just let him blow off some steam. David is now to the point where it's, it's getting into dangerous territory. Now, Abigail, uh, for the next, it uh, looks like about 10 or 12 verses, 
uh, she has this amazing speech that she's worked out. And who knows if it's going to work? She says things to him like, listen, you know, you're right. Nabal was wrong. David, you are, you are a man of God. David, you don't want to bring justice by your own hand. Please don't sin in that way. Because if you do that, David, you're going to have the blood guilt. She used the word blood guilt over and over. David, if you do this thing, if you commit murder, that's going to be, that's going to be on your name forever. You're going you're gonna to carry that, David. Please, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for my family. Please take this gift. Please, please accept my, my apology. Please, please forgive us. Please don't, don't do this thing. After her, her long speech, I'm going to skip Barbara to verse 32. It says, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. You know, for, for all the things that we say about David, uh, he has this amazing ability to be faithful to God in those boring moments. He knows not when to rise up against uh, God's anointed. He doesn't, he doesn't strike Saul. This, this one may be the, the, the highest thing because I don't know how, how he does this. David, David accepts the exit ramp of his own anger. He was fully prepared to go do this thing. And God, he says, God sent you to me. He says to Abigail, God sent you to me. And you're right, I was wrong. You're right, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do this thing. You're right, if I do this, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to force salvation by my own hands, and that's not what God wants for me. I know better than that. And David takes the exit ramp. Now, now for those of you who are really saintly and you've never been angry, uh, I, I, I don't understand you. But for the rest of us who, like, we can get a little temper, a little fiery. You know, you know what really, really gets under my crawl is if someone says something like, really wise and really smart while I'm really mad, you know, like, like, okay, you're right. I shouldn't have acted that way, but that's not the point right now. You know, it's like uh, when, when, when you hear that, there's, there's a tendency to be like, no, I'm pushing that out too. David, David, he doesn't do that. He, he hears the words out of Abigail's mouth and recognizes them for what they are. God just sent me my last exit ramp. God sent me the last escape plan to get off of this path because I'm about to do this thing. And once I do it, once I finish it, all of the consequences are me. And God in his mercy sent me minutes before I get there, sent me the last exit ramp and David takes it. That takes courage. That takes, that takes um, a, a self-assuredness that many people don't have to just look in yourself and be like, I'm wrong. Turn around. These 400 men behind you, was, I mean, their, their hands are on the sword. Hey guys, we're wrong. We're turning around. Here's a cake. <laughs> cake fixes a lot of things in the Bible. Uh, here, here's, some, here's some granola and throws it at him. That's good. That's good. So David stops in his tracks. David goes the other way. Abigail goes back home. And to what does she find but her husband Nabal? Verse 36, and Abigail came to Nabal and behold, I like, you know, I, the author, he's like, and behold, you won't believe this. He was holding a feast in his house. If, if David arrived, think about that. If David arrived at Nabal's house, he would have walked in on the exact party he was wanting to go and eat at. Hey, I hear you might be having a feast here pretty soon. Uh, that's not for you. And then David walks up there. If he made it all the way to the top of the driveway, uh, oh yeah, you're having the feast? I wonder what he would have done. 
Like, he would have just burned the whole house down or something. He was holding a feast, like the feast of a king, he even adds. And it says, And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Golly, this guy. He has no idea how close he came to danger. He had no idea what was right outside his door. He has no idea what Abigail has done. So she told Abigail, she told him nothing at all until the morning light. Why? Uh, Wives, why why might she not tell Nabal what has happened? Drunk guys have have no memory at all. He would not understand the words. He would be like, oh, you're telling a joke, honey. That's so good. And just like, he's he's just, he's merry with wine, the, the Bible says. And so she looks at him. Her adrenaline has to still be pumping at this moment. You have no idea how scary tonight was. And you're just drunk in here having a party with all your buddies. You have no idea what I've done for you. She just goes to bed. She told him nothing at all until the next morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, I'm sure he was hungover and, you know, wasn't in a good mood anyway. His wife told him these things and his heart died within him and became like a stone. Uh, anybody uh, who, who knows people with, uh, you know, uh, waking up uh, after a night of partying just to find out all the bad decisions that had happened and uh, all, the, all the mistakes that could have been made, all the almost and the oopses and the near misses. Uh, that's him. His heart died within him. He became like a stone. It's a very, uh, no pun intended, it's a very sobering moment when you realize how, how dangerous last night was. Although we were partying, although we were having a good time. And it says that about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. He just, just kills over. That's, that's pretty rough. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. That is maybe one of the coldest lines I've ever heard in scripture. He hears the man has died and says, God took care of him. All right. Thank you. There is, there is something about that that is uh, pretty eye-opening. He, he thanks God that he avenges the insult, but then he also says that God has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. In this, in this prayer, even, even more than a week later, 10 days later, David's like, God saved me from making a terribly wrong decision. The end result would have been the same. Nabal would be dead, but it's not on my hands. Thank you, God, for saving me from my wrong decision. And he's kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head, David says. The way David sees it is like, that guy got what what was coming to him. I I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know that David's really speaking for the Lord in that moment. Uh, I don't know if Nabal really owed him anything. He was kind of a jerk, but I I don't know that he owed him anything. But there you are. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife, because she's a widow now, and she was kind to him. That's a pretty good move on David. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose, she bowed with her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David, in all of the hustle and bustle, sees uh, Abigail's widowed now. She's a good woman. She doesn't deserve that. Uh, takes her as his wife. Um, but, but then there's these throwaway lines at the end. Uh, two more verses. 
And says, David also took Ahinoam, Ahinoam, yeah, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. There's no context for, for that. You know, David, uh, he has a little bit of an anger problem. We're also going to find that he has a little bit of a womanizing problem. Uh, and this is going to grow on him quite a bit over the rest of his life. But this is the first that we have a glimpse of it. In this moment, he has a widow that he can protect. And he's like, well, I'm taking wives. She's kind of cute. I'll take her as well. And I got another one. You know, he gets two wives. This is a two-for-one deal there at Carmel. Uh, it's a bizarre moment, really, as, as, it, as it's just stated right here. And then the last verse, verse 44, Saul, remember King Saul is still out there, had given Michal, who was his, uh, that was David's first wife, had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. You know, David, uh, he's, he's making a lot of rash decisions. Uh, he's, he lost a good friend. Uh, he went to Samuel's funeral. Uh, but he's also caught word that he's, he's lost uh, his own wife. Uh, she's been given to somebody else in marriage. Uh, he almost makes a terrible mistake, but God gives him the exit ramp and, and he takes it. And then, and then when he steps back, the, the guy dies anyway. And so he steps in as kind of a, a rescuer or a savior. And he takes Abigail to be his wife and protect her. And he's like, why don't I just take this one as well? And she's cute. I'll, I'll grab her as well. David is, uh, he's complex. Um, here, here's, here's what I think we can walk away from. There's some, there's some red flags that we're going to address with David in the future. Um, his womanizing is going to become the, the death of him eventually. Uh, but for now, I, I just want to admit this, just a, a lesson from David, is that David, he had enough wisdom to take the exit ramp that God was offering him from his anger and from his hurt, significant hurt and significant anger. And then at the very last possible moment, God offers him an exit ramp and he takes it. He listened to an opposing perspective and he trusted God to handle justice in the moment. He, he, he in his anger, was so sure of his own rightness, was willing to kill someone. And then someone says, but you're not right. That's not really what God wants for you. And he listened to the opposing viewpoint. He's like, okay, I, I, I need to rethink this, to step away from it. That takes amazing, amazing courage, something that I think we would be wise to listen to. And so for, for us in this room, I, I think our takeaway could be this, is that oftentimes our anger, our excitement, our sadness, our grief, et cetera, et cetera, it leads us towards areas of sin and compromise and regret. And there's probably not a man, woman, or child in here who doesn't have a story of, yeah, I put myself in a bad situation and I have this regret because of sin, because of anger, because of grief. How are you going to notice when God offers you that last off-ramp? How are you going to have the courage to take it? Are you going to have the courage to take it? Are you going to listen to an opposing viewpoint? Uh, are you going to listen to your, your spouse's words of wisdom? Or are you going to take it as another attack? Are you, are you going to listen to your coworker who says, hey, you know, you might want to pause and just maybe rethink that, that perspective a little bit. Or are you going to lump them in with the enemy as well and, and kind of keep them all together? Here, here's just a biblical principle. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is a biblical principle. There is no temptation that is going to overtake you that God doesn't offer you an exit ramp that you can take at the last second. It's never inevitable until you just take that last step. 
The sword's on your hip, you're ready to do amazing damage, and you have the skills to do it. And you even have a story to back it up. He wronged me, she wronged me. You don't know what they said about me. And all those things may or may not be true, but is that really what God wants? Does God want you to fight for your own justice, or does God want you to let vengeance be his? Scripture says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not for us to take. Jesus says, love your enemy. Bless your enemy and do not curse them. These are, these are the words of our Savior. If we're followers of Jesus, we don't have permission from our Lord to seek our own revenge. We are instructed to just give it to God and let him take care of it. David, while he came really close to taking vengeance into his own hands, he gave it to God and he stepped back and let God take care of it. He took the last exit ramp. And just to show that, that there is always an exit ramp, I, I highlighted 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I want to turn there and look at it. This might be worthy, if, if you have your own Bible especially, uh, this might be worth you turning to and bookmarking or underlining or tattooing on the underside of your arm to remind you that there's always a way out. There's always an exit ramp available. Uh, the bold and the underline is mine. Paul didn't underline that. Scripture says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, you will have temptation. But you're not tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's no temptation that doesn't have the exit ramp. There's nothing there's an ability to have courage and to trust the Lord to work out salvation. But for those of us who have a regret, for those of us who are like, I saw that exit ramp and I didn't take it, can I just tell you, uh, Christ's sacrifice pays for that as well. There's no sin that has overcome you. There's no sin that has overcome the Lord. There's no sin that has surprised him. That if David marched all the way to the top, he would have had regret but there's salvation in the name of the Lord. And so if you carry regret, there's salvation in the name of the Lord. But for you marching forward from this point forward, I need you to hear me say, whatever anger is telling you to do, whatever, whatever um, lust is telling you to do, whatever, whatever uh, grief and depression and anxiety is telling you to do, there's an exit ramp. So you don't finalize that action and have the regrets that come with that and the blood guilt that comes with it. Trust the Lord and take his exits as they come. Let me pray, and then we will watch the queue uh, together. Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you more, more than just hearing stories about who you are. We thank you, God, that you don't leave us in our mess, and that you don't, you don't just turn us loose in this world and say, hey, guys, you figured out, Father, you, you are active, and you give us hope. You give us direction. Uh, Lord, give, give us more Abigails in our life who will, who will speak the truth to our face. Um, give us the courage to listen. Father, show us, give us the eyes to see where those exit ramps are so that, so that we can just exit and sit back and just trust that you will work out justice in your own way. Um, help us to have the courage to do that. Lord, I, I pray your protection over the people in this room that as the stress of life mount up, Father, that you would give beats of clarity, beats of wisdom, beats of the Abigail voices in their life, Father, to, to just fill them with, with truth where our perspective is, is skewed towards what we're thinking. Um, and may in the process we find your grace and your mercy and reflect Jesus uh, to a world that needs uh, a better example than our anger would ever show. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.